My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. This Maya Angelou quote is one of my favorites, probably because it so deeply resonates with me. When I moved to L.A. to originally work as an actress years ago, I remember thinking I had left my eating disorder past behind. No one needed to hear about it. And that was the old me, this part I had cut ties with, like clothing that no longer fit. No pun intended. If you've read my Girl Boner book, you know how and when that proved untrue. Yes, I had moved past the illness, but it's a part of my journey And one that can fuel me, I realized, if I continued to give it light. And that epiphany helped pave the way to more sexual self-embracement and what I believe to be my life's purpose, much of which is Girl Boner. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. I'm so grateful you're listening. Whether you have a story you have felt compelled to share, whether with a loved one or on a larger scale, or if you or a loved one has been struggling to really embrace themselves or live fully amid hardship like addiction, compulsive dieting, or fill in the blank, this episode is for you. It's an extra special one because my fabulous engineer Mackenzie and I headed to the Pleasure Chest to record for a live and thoughtful audience. I was joined by two brilliant guests, fellow authors I admire hugely, We were set up in this awesome area behind a red velvet curtain in front of a wall covered with Halloween underwear. Seriously, how many authors get to do readings and Q&As surrounded by thongs and dildos and lube? It was just really, really cool. Huge thanks to The Pleasure Chest for hosting us and for their ongoing support. Head to their location in New York City, Chicago, or L.A. for free workshops and to shop up a storm if you do attend a free event you'll have the chance to save 15% on a purchase that same day. Before I share the recording, a quick reminder to sign up for occasional Girl Boner Extras by email at augustmclaughlin.com, where you can also check out my blog, my books, and contact me with any questions you might have. And if you prefer audiobooks, yay, you're in luck. The Girl Boner audiobook will release on December 4th, thanks to Brilliance Publishing. Now, without further ado... Welcome to Girl Boner Radio Live at the Pleasure Chest. I'm so grateful that you all are here for this very, very special day. I'm going to introduce our wonderful special guests. To my right, we have Erica Garza, who is the author of the memoir, Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction, which has been featured at the New York Times, Elle, Vice, the Guardian, the LA Review of Books, Cosmopolitan, Megan Kelly Today, and NPR. Her essays have appeared in Time, Glamour, Health, Bust, Good Housekeeping, The Cut, The Los Angeles Review, and Salon. She holds an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia University and a certificate in narrative therapy from the Vancouver School of Narrative Therapy. Born to LA to Mexican parents, she has spent the majority of her life 
as an adult traveling and living abroad. Thank you for being here, Erica. Thanks, August. And to my left, we have Amy Dresner. Amy is a former professional comedian. And she has appeared all over the place at the Comedy Store, the Laugh Factory, and the Improv. Since 2012, she's been a contributing editor of the online addiction and recovery magazine, TheFix.com. She's also written for The Good Men Project, The Frisky, Refinery29, and has been a regular contributor to Addiction.com and PsychologyToday.com, where she has her own addiction blog entitled Coming Clean. Her book, uh, Not My Fair Junkie, is her debut. Thank you so much for being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. So now that we have had our formal introductions with your credentials and all that fun stuff. I thought we would go back to the opposite of your brilliant skills where we talk about our jobs in the most boring, horrible way we can. So there's this meme you might have seen online. It's called Badly Explain Your Profession. Has anybody participate in this? Okay. So it started on Reddit in 2017 and somebody posted a, a meme about this and it went viral. It's gone all over Twitter, people explaining their their job in the most horrible way they can. So for example, I could say, I stare at a computer a lot and blab about erections. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to go first? I write about all the things that are trying to kill me. <laughs> and you do brilliantly <laughs> I sit in a chair for long periods of time and tell people all my secrets oh I like <laughs> it I like it <laughs> so all of us have shared some deeply personal material in our books really raw vulnerable kinds of stuff and I know that for me I had numerous epiphanies along the way that really I had these aha moments where I thought, oh, I need to write about this. I wondered if you could share a bit about your own epiphany. When did you decide to write your book? You know, I wrote this book, I guess it was the book I needed to read at different stages of my life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for so long I felt completely alone, not just as a woman who's dealing with sex and porn addiction, but also as a person who's bisexual, and even when I was younger as a girl with a growing appetite for sex, um, as a Latina, you know, when you don't see your experience reflected back to you in the media or in books, it's easy to think that you're alone and you're inferior to other people and nobody will understand you and to feel a lot of shame. And I often wondered, you know, if I could go back in time and come across my story, would I have felt less alone? Would it have changed my path? And I really do believe that it could have. And so I guess the epiphany to write this book was I started writing about sex addiction back in 2014 with personal essays online. There was like a huge boom of personal essays. Um, and I was part of that. And I wrote about this topic. I'd never written about it before. And I received so much mail from people who were going through similar experience. And they were just so grateful that I was sharing my story and they were feeling seen. And I felt then it was important to write about this it was something that I needed and maybe I could help other people in the process of sharing. I read your essay in Salon, that's how we connected, and I had heard from people who whose male partner had been going through sex addiction or you know, they knew a guy or they were a guy who was dealing with it. And I, I've known from the beginning of Girl Boner that when there's any kind of issue that affects one person or one gender identity, it inevitably affects people of all walks of life and different gender identities. And it was really, really difficult to find a woman who would speak to this topic. And I had three or four women, one was a mother-daughter um, duo, 
who wrote to me about their experiences, and this is when I was putting pitches out online and saying, hey, and usually when I put a pitch out online, I get, I get responses. I got these really private responses from people who did not, they didn't feel comfortable sharing, and there, there was so much more shame, it seemed. And I just, I thank you for writing this book because I do think that it is groundbreaking. Um, and I've seen people review your book saying things like, you know, this is me. Mm. That must feel pretty awesome. It does feel good. Yeah, yeah that's so cool. Amy, when yes. did you decide to write your <laughs> book about all the ways you're... Um, similar to uh, Erica, um, I was writing for the addiction recovery magazine, The Fix, for six years and chronicling sort of my, you know, my mental illness, all my relapses, my trips to rehab, my trips to the psych ward, then I tried. Then I got arrested for felony domestic violence. I'm still single, so if you guys, anyone wants to date <laughs> me, um, uh, and I, um, I, I lost everything and was on a chain gang and had this epiphany. And um, so basically, it was time to write a book. After six years, people were writing to me and they're like, "We want a book. We want a book." And I felt like in my own recovery, I'd finally sort of reached. I had transcended something. I wasn't, because for years it had been like, I got sober and then I relapsed and I got sober and I relapsed for like 20 years. And then finally I'd had this real epiphany while sweeping the streets. Um, and I I fell in love and there was also all this sex addiction that came in uh, this new sobriety. And so I decided to write a book um, hoping that it would help other people and also, <sighs> to just let go of my own shame. And also there's very few recovery memoirs that are funny. And I think it's really important for me being able to laugh at what I was going through while I was going through it was so key to getting through it. I, so I wanted to write a, a recovery addiction that was deep but was also funny. And um, people have written and, and been like, oh my God, like I so identify and thank you for helping me laugh at stuff I was really ashamed of and helping me feel less broken and less alone and da 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 and stuff like that. So that's kind of what uh, what happened. And you've done it. It is a very funny book. It's as funny as it is dark and difficult, <laughs> I would say. And you really put people in the mind of somebody who's struggling with these types of addiction. And it was really fascinating for me as somebody who's been through compulsion type things mm -hmm. and, and kind of addictive stuff, but I was never a, a drug addict. I was never, a, I barely ever drank. Like to understand what it's actually like to live inside you, I think is so eye-opening. And I imagine you hear from a lot of loved ones too, who yeah. appreciate yeah, that perspective because exactly. people are like, why? Yeah, exactly. I mean, people were just like, oh my God. I, I, I really, I, the whole book is in first, is like, for, is, is present tense. And so I wanted people to understand what it's like to be an addict. And so people go, God, I understand. Thank you so much. And then I've also had the family members go, wow, this is a conversation I couldn't have with my brother, my uncle. Like now I understand their addiction. I have more empathy. And even a parole officer wrote to me. He's like, I learned more about addiction from your book than I did 23 years doing narcotics on the you know job. And I was like, cool. I feel like, like. It, I turned 20 years of struggle into self-destruction into something that was a tool that's helped people, and that makes me feel really good. That's so awesome. I love it. Erica, I know you have a piece ready to share. Yeah. Uh, we know that sexual shame often starts very, very young and, and very early, and, and the roots of addiction as well, and get much more complicated into 
adolescents and our teen years, especially when things like the internet come up. Mm -hmm. uh, so you want to tell us a little bit about what you're about to read and then share it? Sure. This is um, from around 1995, so the internet was a new thing. And um, I was 13, and I had just been back braced and so I, for scoliosis. And so I was feeling, I started getting bullied at school, so I started feeling really... Uh, nervous about social interaction, hating my body, a lot of self-loathing going on. And the internet was an easy way for me to get an escape from all of those dark, scary feelings. Um, and especially when it came to finding chat rooms that um, I could, you know, I could escape by talking to other people and pretending I was somebody else. Mm. Some days I was 16 female LA with blonde hair, blue eyes, long legs, and C cups. My name was Emily. Other times I was Jacqueline, 22 female New York with red hair, green eyes, a tiny waist and D cups. I liked wearing lace teddies, fishnet stockings and stilettos. I loved nine inch penises, being fucked really hard, being eaten out, my clit nibbled. Sometimes I preferred fucking on countertops, other times office desks. My online sexual proclivities began with chat room encounters when I was 13. Dial-up internet in 1995 didn't offer the same instant access to streaming porn clips so common today. Clips took hours to down download, sometimes even a whole night, and they weren't easy to find. Before AOL became my go-to for browsing, there was the Imagination Network, aka the Sierra Network. It was an online multiplayer gaming system that allowed users to create their own avatars and play trivia or cards with other users. You also had the opportunity to cyber with strangers, which meant have virtual sex through text. Suddenly, erotic reading took on a whole new demeanor. I sat on the edge of my dad's ergonomic swivel seat, desperate for the conversation prompt ASL, age, sex, location, which was typically followed with, what are you wearing? A lace thong. What's your bra size? 36D. What do you want me to do to you? Anything you want. And on and on. Of course, I wasn't wearing the lace thong, and my tits were not even close to 36D, but none of that mattered. Soon, I was the one ASLing my way around the digitally provocative online community, tricking my parents into thinking I was only playing checkers with other kids around the country. A lot of these counters were random. I cybered with users who said they were 20-year-old males as enthusiastically as those who said they were 45. I cybered with so-called females, too. I always lied about my age, usually saying I was 16, which neither the 20 nor 45-year-olds minded. Maybe they were lying, too. The more versed I became in cybersex, the more I learned about how the act worked, but it would still be years before I would experience anything remotely close to it in real life. I figured that when the time came, I'd be sufficiently prepared. I started off, I started off submissively, answering a mere yes or no to any of their requests, and offered only slight descriptors about my imaginary appearance. But as time went on, I picked up words like cock and blowjob and cum, and started a piece these things together. Back in the 90s, we had only one shared computer in the living room, and so these sexual adventures took place out in the open. This meant having to become very familiar with screen minimizers and the escape key. Soon I was excellent at typing rapidly and efficiently. Even now there's something erotic in picturing the dark blue sofa that sat adjacent to that old computer desk, those white shutters just behind the monitor, and the whirring of the air conditioner from the other side of the wall. Every creak I heard in the hallway that could have been my mom or dad walking in to catch me would send me into an adrenaline frenzy. When the Imagination Network went out of business, my parents signed up for AOL and would speeds improved in what seemed like endless chat rooms, I rarely felt lonely when I was logged in. Chatting and having cybersex assured me that even though I had few friends in real life, I had friends out there and how similar we were. 
In high school, I managed to make a few new friends, but they were as sexually inexperienced as I. And so our conversations consisted of safe, artificial chatter about our favorite bands and TV shows. I tended to seek out girls who talked more than I, feeling awkward and uncomfortable with the sound of my own voice and what little I had to offer. I rarely wanted to see these girls outside of school, limiting our casual intimacies to the one-hour lunch block and quick hallway strolls between classes. Vivid delusions of social rejection like what I'd experienced in junior high made the idea of real intimacy far too costly. I told myself it was cooler to be an outcast anyway. I wasn't meant for the pack. One day in my sophomore year scripture class, we filed into the classroom to find the word masturbation scrawled across the green chalkboard in a giant script. Giggles bubbled up from all corners of the room while my body turned hot and tingly. Our teacher, Sister Victoria, was a petite, light-hearted woman in her 60s who seemed the only nun capable of discussing sex. She often made comments about some of the young male teachers she found handsome, which made her trustworthy to us, relatable. When we all sat down, she stood in front of the chalkboard, a tiny figure ironically framed by a word that was far too sinful to be in such close proximity to a holy woman. This is an important word, she started, masturbation. I want you to all know that while it's normal to become acquainted with your body, masturbation can be, well, she paused. To put it plainly, masturbation can be very dangerous. I gulped and the giggle subsided. You may find yourself staying home all day. I pictured myself in my bedroom, feeling lonely and depressed until I stuck my hands down my pants, then lonely and depressed all over again. Losing interest in your friends. What friends? Losing interest in your work. Losing interest in God. Her look was grave and her tone serious. It made me wonder if this had happened to Sister Victoria. She continued her rant on the perils of masturbation. My breaths became shorter. I felt exposed like my life was an open wound for the whole room to see, vulnerable and raw and prone to infection, as if there were a spotlight on me. Don't look at me, I repeated over and over in my head. Please don't look at me. Then Sister Victoria opened the floor for questions. When nobody stirred, her disposition switched to something much cheerier, and so did everyone else's. We moved on to one of Jesus's many miracles while I sat there in silence, gutted. I needed to stop, but how? My interest in cybersex declined around this time as its effectiveness to getting me off waned. But as my interest in cybersex went down, internet speeds were going up. A steady progression of endless resource matched with my growing habit. Although the first porn site, sex.com, went live in 1994, streaming videos were still the stuff of dreams. Pictures were easier to find and download and were sometimes sent via email from cybersex partners. And once in a while, I found gifts, though rarely. My brother Gabe's drawers never failed to make up for what the internet lacked. Finding the Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson sex tape was one of my most exciting and equally debilitating discoveries. It was 1998 and I was almost 16. The sex tape had been passing between teenagers like precious contraband until it eventually landed in my brother's hands. I'd never had so much enticing footage at my disposal to pause or fast forward or rewind whenever I wanted. The sex tape put me in control. The tape was also the first porn I ever watched with another person, my brother's first serious girlfriend, Monica. It was the first time I let someone into that secret place of ecstatic moans and big bouncing tits and massive dicks and me, the watcher, captivated by all of it. How different it was to have someone right beside me, someone just as captivated, someone to make me feel less alone. Maybe I wasn't so pathetic after all. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. You wrote in your book that you really associated for many years at age 12, at age 24, at age 30, orgasm and pleasure with shame. Did you feel shame around masturbation prior to the nun shaming you for, or anyone for masturbating? Uh, what were your thoughts about what you were doing before anyone actually said something? 
I felt a lot of shame around it. I mean, I found it thrilling and I found it fulfilling and gratifying, but yes, the shame was always present. And I think that just had to do with the silence around it. I mean, I was raised in a Catholic Latino home. My parents never talked about sex. In fact, the only sex talk I remember, only time I remember my mom mentioning sex was when I was around nine. We were passing the local high school and there was um, some pregnant girls walking to class and she pointed at them and said, don't ever let that happen to you. And then she pointed to my crotch and said, don't let anyone ever touch you down there. So it just appeared to me that sex was something bad and sinful and shameful and something I should keep quiet about. So obviously when those feelings came up and I had no context for them and didn't know, you know, I'd never heard anyone talking about them, my first thought was, okay, well, this must be something wrong. And did you feel a sense of, obviously there was physical pleasure, did you feel a sense of excitement when you were discovering these things or was the shame kind of covering all of that? I would say, I mean, I felt the pleasure. It was kind of like a tug of war, I guess, between the two feelings. I mean, I could remember as early as nine being really interested in sex, not knowing what I was interested in, but having the feelings kind of bubbling up and being attracted to, you know, men and women and boys and girls and pretty much everyone and kind of feeling a bit proud of that or excited by it. Um, But as soon as I started getting the messages from the media, from Catholicism um, and just the silence around it from my parents, I just I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to reconcile those two feelings. And at what point did you decide to address the shame and realize that actually it's not shameful, you know, but realizing that doesn't take the shame away, of course. But when did that kind of turning point come about? I would say it was towards the end of my 20s. I mean, I had kind of, I was in this pattern of sabotaging any relationship that kind of meant something and kind of, you know, felt really intimate and um, and just going for relationships that felt very casual and loose and um, and isolating myself a lot and cutting myself off from feelings that were good and, and made me feel happy. And I just, it, it was almost like a voice in my head telling me what was going on and it was becoming more and more um, difficult to hide from that voice. And and, and to shut it off completely. And so I kind of went on a soul search in my late 20s. I went to Bali before my 30th birthday because I wanted my 30s to be different than my 20s and I needed to figure my stuff out. And I had just read Eat, Pray, Love. And so I was kind of inspired by that soul search. Um, and I loved it. You know, I, did, I started taking care of myself and just paying attention to my thoughts, doing a lot of meditation and yoga. And it was when I was in that clear-headed space that I met my husband or the man who eventually became my husband. And he was the first person that I felt that I could say that to you like hey I think I might be a sex addict and he didn't run away he was completely supportive and encouraged me to say more and it just felt so good to be that real and honest with another person and to be that vulnerable and to be listened to and accepted um, for just standing in my truth and I thought okay this is something I need to keep doing and so I started going to 12-step meetings and that's really when the journey started um, turning into something that was healing. Mm, That's really beautiful. Amy, do you relate to some of Erica's experiences, what she just shared as somebody who's gone through sex addiction with like, was porn Um, an issue for you? Mine started later. I mean, uh, I didn't really become a sex addict until this sobriety when I had put down all the drugs and alcohol and I was in a sober living and I couldn't relapse. And I and the feelings from going through a criminal trial and, you know, facing jail and my ex husband like leaving me penniless and all that kind of stuff. Do I have a piece of cat on me? Good. Um, <laughs> um 
uh, I had to check out, and, and I started doing that um, by cutting when I was in treatment, and then uh, they kicked me out for that. And also drinking. I also, you can't drink vodka in rehab. Uh, and uh, then, um, but I needed out. I needed out of my feelings, and I found Tinder. And Tinder was like eBay for cock. I was like, oh shit, this is, can I swear? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it was like so easy, and I just found myself, you know, after having been hurt so much and sexually rejected in my marriage. I needed validation. I wanted to know that I was still attractive and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I started turning towards sex. And um, I understand the, the compulsivity that she's talking about. And I would meet with strangers and fuck them. And then I would drive home crying and like, like just go in the shower in a ball and go, I'm never doing that again. That was so gross. Like, you know, I feel disgusting. And then I would do it again. And it felt exactly like my drug addiction. And I was just like, fuck, you know what I mean? And it was like I had just substituted one thing for another. Mm. Um, and so uh, I went to also slaw and SAA, 12-step things. I did not find them that helpful. I found them really kind of pathologizing, and it didn't really help me that much. And so the more I worked on myself, uh, the more that stuff just kind of fell away. Um, yeah, yeah. Would you uh, share with us what you're going to read? So, well, I've, re I've read with Erica. I don't know, Erica and I are sort of weirdly, we have some weird bond between us. This is the third time we've read together. And um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've always stayed away from any of my sex addiction stuff because I'm like, that's her territory. I'll just read like, the drug, Thank the you druggy for that. stuff. <laughs> you're welcome, of course. You know, and you're the pro. Like, you're the boss on that. Like, I didn't, I didn't give her cyber sex. I started way later. It was like, um, <laughs> So I always stuck to like my druggy stuff or me on the chain gang or whatever. So um, they actually cut out parts of my sex addiction stuff. They were like, we get the editor was like, we get it. Like we got the sex addiction. Like let's, you know, they care about narrative arc. And so they, they actually cut about, they cut some of my most embarrassing bits. But there was one scene I did not want to write, which was where I hit bottom, mm. which some of people in, in, in program will understand when you just hit that place when you're just like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. A, a place of just complete demoralization. And I've never, this was the scene I did not want to write in the book, and this is a scene I've never, ever read aloud. So I'm going to read it aloud. You guys are going to be like, that's not that bad, girl. What are you talking about? Okay. Um, yeah. I don't know if this was in the, I just wanted to say like what I realized for me was that um, there was a, there was a uh, formula and I could put something in my body and I could change my feelings and it didn't matter if it was a Xanax or a donut or a dick, it was all the same thing and that to me is all addiction, it's all alcoholism, it's all the same thing, you know. So this is one of the weirdos I was fucking, okay. Joe, the sober, he was sober too, nice guy, not. Joe, the sober guy who insisted on silence as he aggressively fingered me in his Porsche reappears. He starts calling me slut and whore. It makes me really uncomfortable, but I don't want to seem like a prude. He orders, he orders me via text to go to a sex store and buy a huge black dildo, the biggest I can find. I don't even want to know where this is going. But weirdly and mechanically I obey, texting in pics of different ones, like this one, or, or maybe this one, as I lay them out on the floor of the pleasure chest. <laughs> You're a good girl, a very good girl, he texts me. I roll my eyes, this is fucking stupid. But I don't stop, and I don't have a good reason why. I'm lonely, curious, whatever my reason, it isn't a good one. 
Despite having almost two years sober, I'm still innately attracted to things that are bad for me. Whether my self-destructive inclinations comes out of alcoholism, thrill-seeking, or is a symptom of my low self-esteem, I have no idea. Some people like to go wing-walking. I like to test my mortality and luck by shooting cocaine while having a seizure disorder or by barebacking promiscuous strangers. I'm one sick motherfucker. Joe wants me to dress like a 17-year-old trailer park whore, knee socks, high heels, girly underwear, and a ratty t-shirt. I send him a picture of my outfit for his approval. He is not pleased. First, the underwear aren't right. They're too sexy and hip, not juvenile and trash enough. He finally agrees on a pair of baggy white mesh ones with pink hearts, and we move on to the socks. No, no, those aren't right. They're too wooly. I put on some different ones. No, no, those are too dark, and those are too patterned. Jesus Christ, I think this role play stuff is a pain in the ass. Maybe some people get turned on by the whole ritual of it, but I just want to get to the sex part. It all feels demeaning and demoralizing to me, but even those feelings are preferable to being alone with the void that is me. I'm coming up on, a th- on the three-year anniversary of my domestic violence incident. I need distraction. Just be with yourself, my friends advise. Honestly, I can't think of anything more hellish. Like most addicts, I hate feelings. I know feelings are temporary, that they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. However, to an addict like me, they feel overwhelming, unbearable, and endless. Therein lies the violent urgency to fix or escape them. For example, if I'm hit with rage or sadness or desire, at the beginning I think, well, I, I, I can handle this. But as the feeling builds, moving towards the middle, I feel like a rat in a cage that's slowly heating up and I start frantically looking for a way out. The way out can be handing someone their ass in a vengeful text or masturbating over FaceTime with some freak from Tinder. It can be chain-smoking Marlboro Blacks while also chewing Nicorette as I feverishly troll eBay for the perfect vintage whatever. And sometimes, just to make it to the end of a feeling, the magical place when you see it doesn't actually last forever, I just make myself go to bed. I've been known to crash out for 14 hours straight in the fetal position, hoping that when I wake up, I'll have somehow rebooted. I get a text from Joe with his instructions. I'll come in at 8.30. Leave front door unlocked. You will be sitting on the edge of the bed. You will not speak. You will not look at me. I'll take some photos for my own use. When I'm done, I'll leave. Okay, I text back. Okay, what, he demands. Okay, daddy. That's right. Joe shows up exactly on time. I'm sitting on the bed precisely as he asked, and I'm so scared I'm shaking. He's wearing a hoodie over his head, partly covering his face, which I've only seen once in the dark back seat of his SUV. He doesn't kiss me. He roughly flips me over onto my stomach, rips off my underwear, and fucks me with the black dildo. I can hear him breathing heavily. He's very aroused. I pretend to be, but I feel detached, shut down. I'm sort of hovering outside of my body, watching this whole bizarre scenario, wondering how I went from being a bejeweled CEO's wife to getting fucked with a black dildo by a stranger while dressed up as a 17-year-old white trash prostitute. Was this my new sobriety, just exchanging one horrifying self-destructive behavior for another? I hear my sponsor, Jay's voice. You put down a behavior when what it is doing to you is worse than what it is doing for you. Joe finishes and leaves. I wash off the dildo and stuff it in the closet. I throw the torn underwear in the garbage. As much as I want to dress this up as I am liberated or edgy or sex positive, I know that I'm out of control and deeply unhappy. I tell none of my friends about this latest incident, and I tell my friends everything. There was a comic I'd been friends with for probably seven years. His name was Sully. He was big and kind of lunky with a belly and a beard and slow eyes. He looked like a lumberjack. A lot of hipsters do. And even though he'd been clean for a few years, he still had that slow, apathetic, junky drawl. There'd always been an attraction between us, 
but I was married at the time, and he was having an on-again, off-again relationship with a crazy model. It was obvious that if we were ever single at the same time, we would at least fuck. Once his relationship to Miss Cheekbones fell apart for the umpteenth time, I was divorced and sober again. He started calling me every day. He was funny and attentive, but he wanted me to video myself peeing and also call him daddy, and I thought that was fucking creepy. I did it, but I saw we had different kinks and any long-term thing was ill-fated. He was in town to see his family, and I had my friend's whole place to myself. He came over and we had sex. It was pretty good. He's dirty and uninhibited, but I felt some strange apathy in myself when we were in bed together, and I knew immediately I would never, ever fall in love with him. But our long friendship was a good base, and we had the important commonalities of addiction and comedy. I should at least give it a go, right? He was on his way over for the second time when Joe texted. I want to see you. I can't. 20 minutes, I'll meet you anywhere you want. I can't, I'm sorry. You dare say no to me, slut? I have somebody coming over. A guy? Yes. I want to watch. No, that's weird. Do it. He'll never know. You can just prop up your phone and FaceTime. No. Be a good girl and do this. Don't disobey me. He hammers on and I finally concede. I prop up my phone on the bedside table and aim the camera at the bed. Sully comes over and we start fooling around. Somehow Joe gets disconnected and keeps calling back again and again and again. Wow, somebody's really trying to get a hold of you, Sully says. Don't worry about it. Ignore it, I say, kissing him. Sully had been a homeless street junkie. He's no, ju- he's no dummy. He quickly figures out what's going on. Are you filming us? Is somebody watching? Uh, Amy? I- I'm sorry. It's this weird guy, and he's so demanding, and I, I-, I don't know. I-, I guess I thought it would be kind of hot. I just wish you'd asked me first. I know, it's shitty. I'm sorry. We've been friends a long time, and I... It's cool, whatever. After he leaves, I call Joe. What the fuck is wrong with you? You just kept calling and calling? He totally figured it out. That was hot. I was getting really into it. Now you have to help me finish. What? Go get that dildo and fuck yourself in the ass and touch yourself on FaceTime. That thing is huge. It's going to hurt. Do it. I go get the dildo and call him back on FaceTime. I touch my pussy and slowly push the dildo up my ass. It's extremely painful. I don't like this. It's complete vulnerability without a drop of intimacy or safety, and it leaves me feeling frightened and sick to my stomach. I can hear him breathing into the phone and see a dark shadow of his hand moving as he jacks off. When he comes, he hangs up. I just sit on the bed, silent. I hear a dog barking on the street. I hear the homeless guy who lives in the alley pushing a creaking shopping cart. I feel more dirty and alone than ever, and I don't like who I've become. Thank you for sharing that. I know it can feel really vulnerable, especially something that, yeah, yeah. You've been promoting your book for some time. It came out last year, right? Does, how does the, how do you manage that, that sense of vulnerability when you're reading and sharing your stories? Um, well, I'm kind of a recovery advocate, so that part I'm sort of used to, and I think I add a lot of humor. I mean, the sex addiction stuff, you know, if someone asked me to be the fem- the it was the fa- to be the female face of sex addiction for a, uh, it was, it was a TV, like, news show. And I was like, I don't know, man. You know, this was, there was so, there's so much charge around it, so much stigma. I was like, I want to get married again. I don't know if I want that on my resume forever, you know. I've already got <laughs> six rehabs, four psych wards, three suicide attempts, and a domestic violence charge. Like, 
give me a shot here, you know, <laughs> you know, but um, uh, most people, when I you get that, you know, what, what in the detail, in the personal is the universal. The more detailed I am and the more open I am, the more that people identify with it. I mean, whether you've been a sex addict or not, I think everyone has done something sexually with someone that they didn't want to do. They felt like the person would get angry. They were drunk. They felt like they couldn't say no, you know, for whatever. So it's like whether they took it to that extreme with someone who was doing some weird role play thing with them. You know, I just I look back and I'm like, why didn't I just tell this guy to fuck off? You know, why didn't I just say, hey, this isn't my bag, dude. And I did eventually just say, hey, you know what? Like, this isn't my this isn't my bag. I'm sorry. Like, we're out. I'm out. But um, it took a long time getting there. And uh, I mean, there was times when I showed up at places <laughs> and I knew immediately I should leave. Strangers. I didn't even know their name. I just showed up and I was like, you should leave. But I was such a junkie that I was like, I'm not leaving without my fix. Like I came here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, whether it was drugs or sex or whatever, I was like, I'm not leaving till I got, till I get what I came for. And I was like, okay, junkie, you know. And um, so I don't feel vulnerable about the drug stuff. I think that stuff is actually, you know, there's so it's, you know, we've got celebrity rehab and we've got intervention and all, you know what I mean? There's so many recovery movements. That's more out in the open. I think the sex addiction stuff and the porn addiction, especially as women, is much more cutting edge and much more stigmatized. Yeah, and there's so much controversy too about the labels and right. how you were saying that it's pathologized. You've, you wrote the, about that in your book too, about how many of the treatment programs do kind of pathologize all these different pieces. How helpful versus harmful do you think those kinds of labels are? How important are they? I don't think a label is really important. And I think that's where we get caught up in terms of like, you know, people saying, oh, I'm 12 step or I'm smart, you know, smart recovery or I'm on Suboxone or I'm this or I'm that. It's like, who cares? Like whatever gets you to a place of either like, you know, like use that's not destroying your life or gets you sober right on. Like we all need to be like unified in that. I mean, SLAW and SAA for me, I found it very triggering and I would actually find myself texting people to hook up while I was leaving meetings. And I also felt them, you know, there's, I mean, if you take what they say seriously, I mean, we, we are all sex addicts. I mean, every love song is, 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 is love addiction. Every, you know what I mean? It's so in our culture. And I just thought, this isn't helpful to me. I mean, what ended up happening was I fell in love. And then I felt I had, you know, the the experience of intimacy. And once you have that, you know, sex without int- without any emotional connection just feels like fucking shitty fast food. It's like it doesn't even compare, mm. you know. But saying that, I've been celibate for a year and a half since that breakup. So I don't know if I'm sexually anorexic, another label, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what? where are the labels? St- I mean, I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't find it helpful. I just didn't find it helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I feel mixed about labels, too, in general, about eating disorder stuff, too, because people think they have to have like a really severe, you know, diagnosable thing to have an issue that is worthy of treatment. Right. And, you know, I that was my first 
thing because yeah. I was anorexic and bulimic for five years but it was like that's a whole other book you know it's like I can't cover all how, you know all the ways I'm fucked <laughs> yeah. up in one book you know what I mean people are like are you borderline like I really identify you see borderline I'm like that's a whole other book bitch like I can't I just can't you know what I mean so yeah, this yeah. is a book about my drug addiction <laughs> um, but I agree with you I mean it's like you know and I think labels can be very dangerous because I think for me also I use them to uh, allow myself to act out in those things. Well, what do you expect? I'm a drug addict. What do you expect? I'm a sex addict. Mm -hmm. What do you expect? I'm crazy. Yeah, I totally did that too. When I was diagnosed with anorexia, at first I was like, once I accepted it, I I like wore it like a badge. Uh, I'm like, of course I'm not going to eat. I'm anorexic. Like there can be that weird. It became justifiable to continue in that behavior. So I think it's important to sort of you know, own it, but also to be able to recast yourself as and, and grow out of it. Mm-hmm. Which is hard because that's the gray area, which anything addictive is very black and white. Yes. Finding that nuance yes. in the middle where, yes. you know, yeah, there's there's a thing and maybe the label helps you get certain support or insurance coverage yeah. or whatever, but that you don't have to fit into this little box of. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, 12 steps specifically is very, very, can be very extremist. And it's like, you know, just as addicts, we're just not good at moderation at all. It was like, I just stopped drinking coffee. I have five and a half years sober. It's like, I drank so much coffee, I almost threw up. I'm like, all right, we got this down. You know what I mean? It was just yeah. like, oh, my God, like, you know. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. I, go ahead. I do think something could be said, though, for the community of support that is available through 12-step, especially with something like sex addiction, because people just don't talk about it yeah. publicly. Like, the culture just doesn't support or make space for that, especially for women. Um, so people often come to me and ask me, what's the first thing I should do? And they think I have all the answers, um, which could could be very overwhelming, you know? Like, I'm not perfect, and, and, you know, I've been cast into this public spotlight of being an authority on the topic, and I feel like it's always helpful to tell people to try 12-step as a I first agree. step. Um, I didn't stick with it either, because I also found it pathologizing right. and I don't like <laughs> saying that I'm powerless. I was, was going to be like, are you disagreeing with no, me? I don't like saying I'm powerless too. Like every right. time yeah, I go yeah. into a meeting, um, handing my power over. But I do think that it could be helpful for people who have been silent for a really I long time and here's this safe space where other people have been through the same thing and I, I can talk about it but here. also they were like you know don't be really graphic because it could be triggering to other people and I was like I lived in terror of triggering other people with my shares mm-hmm. you know and when I go to SA there's one women's SAA meeting in all of Los Angeles all of the mm-hmm. e- yeah really wow. yeah there's some co-ed ones and um, I mean, I, re- I went to, uh, but I went to one. It was me and twelve dudes in a church, and I was like, okay, you know. And they were like, I can't ke- stop jacking off, and I can't, you know, stop like getting hookers on Craigslist. I'm like, I don't really identify with that. I cried through the whole meeting, mm-hmm. and it was like, yeah, you know. And they were very respectful, but there was one women's SAA meeting, and I wrote about it, and they hated me at that meeting. They found me. I guess you're not supposed to use bone as a verb. They don't like that. Interesting. I I found that very disrespectful. (laughs) (laughs) But that's one reason that both of your books are so important (laughs) is because the conversation and the permission that people feel when they can relate to something and go, I'm not alone. And the fact that so many people relate to your books, you know, so many women do. I think that's huge. That's huge. Um, And I really was affected by what you said about sharing details because Something interesting can happen. I don't know if you two relate to this when you're telling your story, um, where you start to go, oh, I'm talking about myself too much, which is your story. So it's kind of like you're supposed to be doing that. <laughs> but uh, I have found myself feeling really vulnerable about 
putting so much information into particular stories that I share, which I'm going to read one of them. Um, excerpts from it because of time, not because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to take out information. Uh, but it's just it's an interesting dynamic. Have, have either of you experienced that where you feel like you're sharing, like you're kind of going on and on about yourself or you're talking about the same thing too much? Like, do you start to go into that self-doubt spiral ever? No, because I find myself totally fascinating. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, now, well, now, after promoting the book for over a year, I want to blow my brains out. You know what I mean? Like, I know it all too well. But, um, it, you know, again, like, I, I just spoke at She Recovers, and it was 500 women and in, type, in recovery from, you know, eating disorders, trauma, sexual abuse, drug addiction, everything. And um, I got really freaked out about speaking in front of 500 women. And some of them were celebrities and really important political women. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just some junkie. And I'm really obnoxious. And I'm like, uh, you know. And I called my sponsor. And I was, like, crying and freaking out. And I'm like, I'm unworthy. And he goes, it's not about you. It's about the message. And I was like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what I really try and remember. It's not about me, man. Yeah, it's that's about what the me message. Too. The mm-hmm. message is you can recover and like it give you can give people hope and they're mm-hmm. not alone. And that's I think the thing is everyone goes, God, I thought I was alone in that. Yeah. And they're not. And it's like, you know, even your darkest, deepest, gnarliest shit. I've had people go, I pulled a knife on my ex too. I just didn't, you know, he didn't call the police. I'm like, Well, you're lucky, my ex is a pussy, you know? It's like but whatever, you know, it's like so, um, but getting yeah i mean yeah Th- that's exactly what i do too is is have to remind myself yeah. that it's about the message and it's funny because when i was preparing for today so i chose an excerpt about my eating disorder experience that i haven't read at other girl boner events and i was like i'm at the pleasure chest i should really do like the story that's much more explicit because here i can talk about orgasms no one will like kick me out um <laughs> but that's chapter one in case anyone's curious um but I realized that the theme about telling our stories and being vulnerable, it means to, to share the story that feels more vulnerable. And as I was going through the, the chapter that I have too, until today, yesterday, I have felt like, oh, it's too long. I, it, I go on and on and it's, it's like, why do I need to go so deep into this in the middle of my book? And it was very hard for me to cut sentences out mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I realized that every single one, if I'm actually thinking, of somebody who might not know some of the lessons that I was able to learn or um, some of the things that I felt super alone in um, that I know I wasn't, it has to be in there just in case, even if it's for that one person, because to that one person, it can be pretty life-changing. That's interesting. I just want to say, like, when I was, I mean, my thing, it tends to be a lot of dialogue. And as a comic, I tend to, like, use humor to skim over things. Mm -hmm. And my editor was like, hey, take a pause. Like, what were you feeling? Like, what were you thinking? Take a moment here. And, like, slowed me down a lot and wanted me to expound more. Because I was like, here's funny dialogue. And then there's action and dialogue and action. Okay, thank you. You know, and she really wanted me to stop and sort Mm -hmm. of open it up more. And that was really painful. I bet. <laughs> yes. And thank goodness for those editors. Because no. my editor also, I, I cut an entire chapter out, a whole story about myself and my experience. And then later I was like, did I just, by the way, cut, did you want, and, and she was so wonderful. And she said, that needs, like, what are you thinking? Of course it has to be in there. Sometimes right. you need that yeah, other of perspective. Course, push back. Yeah. Okay. So this story is uh, from my Loving Your Body chapter. And it takes place when um, I was living in. 
Paris, I w- had been working as a model, and uh, I was in my late teens. All right. The morning that nearly became my last started like any other during my time in Paris. I awakened woozy, exhausted, and determined. Where logic would have told me to get some rest, nourish my body, and tend to the day's work responsibility, the voice inside me commanded, I wake up and run. I slipped into my worn-out, blood-stained sneakers, stepped out of my tiny flat, and headed toward the Seine. The Eiffel Tower came into full view over the pastel haze of the sunrise, a living, breathing Monet. The dewy earth squished beneath my feet as I ran to the rhythm of calorie counting, 45 plus 6 plus 10. I estimated the previous day's damage, then plotted an itinerary of exercise and occasional food bits to compensate. So accustomed to ignoring the dizziness and fatigue accompanying me, anything else would have felt foreign. But this time was different. Pushing aside the added sense of offness in my gut, I observed the dip in the ground ahead of me. It looks like an adult-sized cradle, I thought. Perhaps I knew what was coming. I ran with increasing dizziness and pain as though a metal clamp squeezed my brain and fog saturated my lungs. Tears stung my eyes as I tried to outrun the inevitable. A force surged within me like a stranger stalking me from the inside. I felt a flutter in my chest, heard myself gasp. Black flecks speckled my vision, dizzy, so dizzy, just keep going. I tried to take another step, but my entire body gave out. Crumpling, I fell to the ground as though in slow motion. And for a brief, savory moment, I felt weightless. I awoke later lying in the grassy cradle, the taste of blood and dirt in my mouth. And rather than contemplate how long I'd been there or if I'd been hurt, one thought filled me with terror. Does dirt have calories? I don't recall who found me or how I made it to the medical center. Only the words of the British doctor, you have anorexia, do you understand what that means? You could have died. You could die. Her words blurred together like fog on a windshield as my thoughts went crazy. I felt neither thin nor skilled enough to have a disorder characterized by starvation. Sure, I had problems, the cancer in my soul I had journaled about. I felt physically and emotionally rotted and weak, but couldn't make sense of anything. I only knew I had to go home. Back in Minnesota, it took me months of introspection and therapy to accept my diagnosis. Once I did, I fought hard to uphold it. Anorexia seemed like the one special thing about me. Without it, what would I have left? Like many eating disorder treatment programs, much of my dietary care focused on my weight and calories, only rather than my previous restriction, the goal was healthy gains. Meanwhile, not a single expert or self-help tool inquired about my sexuality, how I felt about it or expressed it, whether I masturbated, a medicinal source of pleasure and body respect I could have been experiencing, yet hadn't even once by that point, or if Ed, the eating disorder, was interfering. I now consider this omission catastrophic. Numerous people told me I would always struggle with my illness, that the goal would be a perpetual state of recovery, but that wasn't good enough for me. When one of my worst nightmares came true, I feared they were right. In a moment of despair, I gave in to my longing for a single bite of chocolate ice cream. As I placed the sweet dollop on my tongue, its cold sweetness in my mouth, my entire body trembled. I felt intoxicated, a sense of head-to-toe orgasm, danger, and temporary relief. 
but one bite turned into two, then six, then all that remained of the half gallon. The fatty cream sat like a putrid rock in my shrunken stomach. I had never felt so ashamed. One night after a fast ended in our gar gargantuan binge, I hit a new bottom. I considered gulping the poison I had used occasionally to vomit, aware of the life-threatening risks. I didn't want to die, but I couldn't bear life as I knew it. In a fury, I scavenged the house for the tiny bottle, but I couldn't find it. My heart raced and I struggled to breathe, but then something remarkable happened. Incapable of purging through my viable methods, I calmed down. That calmness paired with tired frustration and an inability to foresee life continuing as I knew it brought clarity. Try something new, you have to. I walked with trepidation to my wall mirror as though nearing a fatal cliff. For the first time in too long, I looked not at my hips, belly, or thighs, but into my eyes. The head-on stare punctured the swollen balloon of hurt inside me, releasing sobs. You can't live like this anymore, I told my reflection. I won't let you hate yourself so much. This is not who you are. I didn't know what I was fighting for, but my instinct said don't give up. My anger at Ed and my proclamations in the mirror were the first signs of self-love I had displayed in years, the light switch in the dark cave I lived in. If I managed to turn it on, I knew my life would change. So rather than plot restriction strategies for the coming days as usual, I began plotting a future free of Ed. That night became a good riddance Ed rampage. I threw my skinny clothes and scale in a dumpster and removed the size tags from my clothes. I trashed every fashion magazine, food journal, and diet book sang my feelings into made-up songs. It took numerous attempts of arriving at an upscale restaurant alone before I dined there, and several more before I enjoyed the food without heavy sweating or heart palpitations. I wept over a homemade candlelit dinner for one, served on my grandmother's china. I stocked my kitchen with food until it felt warm, loved, and lived in. I took a Buddhist philosophy course and applied its principles to my meals. On difficult days, I asked myself what I would feed a dear friend, then treated myself to just that until gradually, finally, I became her. What seemed to seal my recovery more than most anything came as a complete surprise. I was sitting in a college classroom in a small Minnesota town when the professor stood before us and said, today, we are going to talk about sex. I began to realize my lack of sexual empowerment and the ways that lack had impacted myself I haven't had the urge to starve myself into near invisibility since. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so since I shared a bit about some turning points, I wondered if you could each share one of the most powerful ones that you've had. I remember in the early stages of my recovery thinking that I had to put myself in this neat little box. I was never going to watch porn again. I was going to be strictly monogamous, and I put a lot of restrictions on myself. And I think that in retrospect, it was important that I did that because it helped me interrupt my patterns and my habits and start to think about how I'd gotten to that point in my life. But after a while, it started to feel inauthentic to me. and. Um, you know, I still wanted to watch porn sometimes. I still wanted to explore sexually and be experimental. And I didn't know how to reconcile that desire with what I thought a person in recovery was supposed to be and how they should behave. And that's when I started to realize that recovery was going to look different to every person. And that for me, 
It didn't have to be about cutting off my sexuality completely. It had to be more about embracing that side of myself without feeling any shame. And to me, that felt like the most crucial part of of my healing was moving past that. Mm, I love that. And I love that you're so sex positive and your book is so sex positive. And sometimes when people talk about porn addiction, I've heard it in the context of a really sex negative mindset where it's like, they're against sex ed and they're against like masturbating for pleasure. And mm. it was so refreshing for me to to hear that that's not your view and that's not everybody's path. Right. You know, and I, I think like Amy was saying, it could get to a point if you go to 12 step meetings and all that where it starts to veer into the sexual anorexia part of it. And I met so many people who were terrified of going back down that path mm -hmm. that they just cut themselves off completely. And that's not living either. And that's not happiness either. So it's all about, you know, forging a new path and, and learning to find that balance. Mm -hmm. And I'm still figuring it out, but I feel like I'm in a much better place than I was even in the earliest stages of my recovery. That's so great. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. What about you? Um, yeah, I just wanted to say when I lost my virginity, um, and it was a really horrific experience, and that's in the book too, um, <laughs> that I became anorexic right after that. It mm. was a complete like repulsion of my sexuality, and I became a little girl. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. And you know, your period goes away, and the whole deal. So when you were talking yeah. about the sex thing, it was like you're the only other person that I had actually that that I ever ever heard connect that. Um, yeah. And, and in terms of like, yeah, I just I remember just people in Slaw, and it was like, you know, no one raised their ha hand to sponsor, and I was like, this is a lot of sheep and not very many shepherds in here. So I was like, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, my my turning point. <clears throat> was so I'd been very entitled my whole life I come from you know uh, you know a decently wealthy family in Beverly Hills and I never wanted to take care of myself and I'd always thought of myself as broken and I got a lot of attention that way my parents took care of me and then I married someone who was rich and he was going to take care of me he had a background in psychiatry and rehab and I was like so I was just all about being taken care of because I was too broken and special and fucked up to take care of myself and unfortunately, what that what that creates is y if you don't ever do anything for yourself, you don't think you can, and then you're crippled because then you really can't. And also, um, so it's like a learned inability. Um, and also, you have no self-esteem because you've never done anything for yourself. So there's like, yeah, you can have money and you can have things given to you, but you don't. It doesn't mean anything because you haven't earned them. So when I lost everything and was left penniless in a psych ward and went on medical disability and was sweeping the streets on a chain gang me and like 40 Mexican guys, you know, and uh, I was feeling really sorry for myself. And I had, I was like, look at, you know, I was like 42 and a poor divorcee and crazy and, you know, six rehabs. And I was like, I'm a loser and poor me. And, you know, I've, I've been given this terrible, you know, genetic lottery and I'm sweeping the streets. And I just thought, wait a minute, this could be the best thing that ever happened to you. Or this could be the worst thing that ever happened to you and it's your decision. Mm. Like this is, what if this is an opportunity? What if this is not an, an accident? What if there are lessons here? What if this is life, that this could transform you in your life in a way you've never thought, you know, if you embraced it. And you know, my book opens with a, a quote from Will Rogers who says, the worst thing that happens to you can be the best thing for you if you don't let it get the best of you. Mm. And so I was like, okay, and I embraced 
the street sweeping and I embraced the poverty and I embraced everything and I embraced the program and um, it changed me. I had empathy. I got a work ethic. Um, you know, I, it, it just absolutely transformed me in a way that I never thought possible. And I'm not saying go get, you know, arrested in the court you know, ordered community labor is the, is the key for everyone. But for me, I chose to make that a turning point. And it did something for me that I, that no therapy or no 12 step had ever been able to do, which was shift that attitude into, into a place of gratitude and, and full acceptance of, uh, and response for, for the responsibility of my actions in my life. And when you take responsibility, you're empowered and then you're empowered to take other things. And so that was sort of that that moment that sort of shifted everything for me and um, became sort of the fulcrum of the book also. It's one of my favorite parts of the book is when when you're finishing that, first of all, this is the, the arc of that experience, because when you first start, you feel very differently about the whole thing. But you really developed friendships, and yeah. it was like bittersweet. You don't want to quit almost, like I not know. quit, but you were done. And you kind of wanted to keep going. They're like, no, you, you can visit. Yeah, <laughs> but, I know. Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. I would love to invite my friend Natalie up here. She's, where is she? There, right in front yeah. of my face. Uh. <laughs> My wonderful Natalie Hatches, please come on up. She has created these incredible cards. We're going to do a little activity. Um, you could speak into, actually, which microphone is best? This one? Do you think? Uh, so I had the pleasure of um, spending some time with Natalie and learning about these beautiful cards that she's created that have these affirmations. And I think they really tie into, all three of us have found a lot of healing from these different like shifts of, of attitude and and message like phrases that really speak to us and uh, mindfulness and I feel like your cards really tie into the healing process for anybody who has any type of, of sexual shame which I think most of us have experienced so could you share um, who you are briefly and also why you created these cards and then we'll we'll have a fun fun activity for us sure. here I'm Natalie Hatches. I'm a sexologist and hypnotherapist, and I work a lot with women who are really trying to just embrace their sexuality and feel more sexually free, and I have a client who is a sexual abuse survivor, and um, I was looking for cards for her on sexual affirmations, and I couldn't find any, um, which is surprising because... They're cards really for everything. Yeah, <laughs> there are but, yeah. everything. Um, so I created some, and it's really about changing your mindset and, and the power of thought and, and really embracing the positive um, side of sexuality and, like you said, just the uh, mindfulness of, of being sexually empowered and having that healthy balance. And so that's what these are. Um, what do, so we're each going to draw a card and then just share how that its message might resonate with our own journeys or maybe a certain time in our journeys or a place that would have been really beneficial kind of how it speaks to us okay god how terrifying <laughs> <laughs> they're all very positive yeah. <laughs> and they're really stunning you can see the i love that you created the artwork something is really that didn't gorgeous exist. that's so cool you. you're yeah. like look for oh. it you're like i'm gonna make this <laughs> i, I drew really one cool. that was like calling out for me Here oh you go. wow <laughs> hello yeah on point. Would you like to go first, Erica? Sure. Okay, so. Um, oh, okay. oh, I've got your microphone. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Should we show you? Yeah. Here we go. So that's all right. Up. Here we go. Good you can read your talk. card aloud first. So my card says, I choose healing for my heart, body, and soul every day. 
This speaks to me because I guess it's an ongoing effort and it's something you have to think about every day. Um, it's funny having written this book, how many people reach out to me. I said this before, they think I have all the answers and I'm perfect. And then I come out to something like this, you know, where I'm not in the privacy of my room writing, but I'm here in front of people or I'm an interviewer, TV or something. And it's like, wait, I'm not perfect. I shouldn't be talking about this. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Leave me alone. But, um, <laughs> and then I'm just like, no, actually doing something like this and speaking about it, even though it's scary sometimes and I don't feel like I have it all together all the time, um, it just allows me to get in touch with my vulnerability really fast. And the older I get, the more I see that vulnerability is a strength and not a weakness. And it allows me to have a more genuine connection with those around me. And if I remind myself of that every day, and if I put myself in situations that make me remember that, then I'll just keep growing as a person. Awesome. That's beautiful. So I got my body is attractive. <laughs> uh, Subtle oh hint from the universe. Right? Where do I start? Um, <laughs> Because literally my my body dysmorphia issues started around age five. So it was a life lifelong thing for a long time. Um, when I think about this in terms of my healing path, it's interesting because even when I was early in my recovery from the eating disorder and everything, I would say things like, all bodies are beautiful. And I thought, if I say it enough, then I'll believe it. Mm. But I just avoided mirrors and um, and just figured I had to accept you know, surrender to whatever this thing was that I saw, but there was still a disconnect until I started to embrace my sexuality. And even once I had started doing that, it, I, I still, I still didn't know if I really knew what I looked like. I just didn't care so much anymore. Right. Mm. So I would just sort of, I remember the first time it struck me that I really didn't care was I went to do uh, a very public thing with cameras around and I had mascara on one eye, which <laughs> is really strange for, you know, when you're blonde, you really see through eyelashes. Like, it was very obvious. I didn't have, like, it just looked like I just forgot one eye. And I was so excited because I was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even care. Um, but there's a difference between that and actually feeling and seeing that your body is attractive. And I didn't really think that that mattered that much. But after I did masturbate for the first time, which is that story I mentioned in Chapter 1, I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror next to the bed and I was I was weeping over this beauty I saw. It was really beautiful. And um and I I credit that. So thank you for these cards. They're really beautiful. Next. Thank you. <laughs> Read your card first. Uh I am grateful for the healing that is happening in my body. Um so after the uh the breakup a year and a half ago, I lost, I got down to 110 pounds, which was basically the weight I was when I was anorexic and I was chain smoking. I didn't use, that was my, my first thought was I need to put a needle in my neck. And I thought, okay, let's not do that. We have a recovery memoir coming out. That might not be so good. You know, <laughs> people going, well, our author can't be here, but she's Skyping in from her eighth rehab, Amy, you know? So, um, and my second thought was I want to kill myself. And I thought, okay, it's heartbreak. You know, let's, you know, put our big girl panties on, people get through heartbreak. And um, it really triggered a lot of old stuff where I thought I looked okay and people were like, holy shit, like, should I call an ambulance? Do you wanna sit down? Like, people really thought I looked ill. And I started working with a trainer and I started eating more and now I'm 120 pounds and um, 
I feel stronger and I feel like more sexy and I don't I feel like you know that I've recovered from that place where I sort of shrunk into myself with all of that sadness you know mm. um, it's funny that you should talk about you know what you were talking about because I had like a total meltdown before today just I saw a picture of myself and I was like oh my god I want to kill myself like is everyone who ever fucked me blind like Jesus Christ like literally I totally was like I must have a great personality, like, holy shit, you know? And I was scared to come with you guys. I'm like, here's the old dragon Jew, like, you know? I was like, my head was going fucking crazy. And um, I just thought, I'd start crying. I saw this picture from She Recovers that I hated. And um, I just, I posted, you know, you can be terrified and full of self-loathing and still show the fuck up. I do it every day, guys. Your head is lying, fuck feelings, show the fuck up. And I can't tell you how many people are identi identify with that. It's like we all feel that way, you know. And so that's kind of my thing is just like th really throwing it out there, like the truth and not trying to like look good on Facebook. Like who gives a fuck? She has a point, right? After some audience Q&A, I decided to wrap up on a light note by taking Erica and Amy through the Inside the Actors Studio questionnaire, which James Lipton adapted from Bernard Pivot's questions. So we're going to go back and forth. I'm going to ask Erica and then Amy. Just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Erica, what is your favorite word? Explore. <laughs> Good one. Amy, what is your least favorite word? No, when it's said to me. Mm. <laughs> and I don't like the word cunt either. I don't like that. I think cunt is like, oh, my cunt. I think that still sounds kind of dark and ugly. And mm. it's like I definitely don't like when men call women cunts. But in Britain, then we're like, you, you, he's a fucking cunt. That's different. You know what I mean? But I just. Mm, everything's <laughs> different with a British accent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like the word cunt, though, if it's used positively. Because it's a beautiful <laughs> part of the body. <laughs> Erica, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Confidence. Mm, yes. Amy, what turns you off? What turns me off creatively, spiritually, or physically? It just says what turns you off. You could fill in the blank. Oh. Just something that you don't like. People who can't spell. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I don't care how fucking hot you are. If you can't fucking spell, like, no. <laughs> Non-negotiable. And I just, you know... Uh, and, and being disrespectful. I don't like, I don't like people yeah. who are disrespectful or unempathetic. Mm. I could go on and on about things I don't like, obviously. Okay. No wonder I'm single. Here's my list of no's. <laughs> Erica, what is your favorite curse word? Fuck. Yeah. yeah. I say that quite often. You say it well. Although cunt is a nice word, too. I, I don't really mind Oh, how it. dare Second you? How fucking dare you go against uh, me, Erica? Now it's getting dark again. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, what sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of my kitty, Colonel Puff Puff purring. It's really soothing. What a sweet name. Erica, what sound or noise do you hate? Oh. <laughs> She's got a list, too. Yeah. See. No, I would say right now. That changes, I guess. But right now, it's the dog next door that won't stop barking. <laughs> oh. Keeps me up at night. Oh. <laughs> Amy, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh. Screenwriting, TV writing. 
Nice. Yeah. If I could sing, I would love to be a singer. I think that's, but I can't. I'm like totally tone deaf and, you know, and I can't dance. So that's not going to happen. But like if, you know. Yeah. Another style of writing. Yeah. 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 Erica, what profession would you not like to do? (laughs) So much easier. Mm -hmm. Border Patrol agent. (laughs) 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 I wonder why. Amy, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I'm sorry that was so hard, but good fucking job. Thank you all for being here. Thank you both for being so amazing. Uh, So our books are available. We're here to sign them. We're here to chat with you. Um, Just thank you so much with all of my heart for being Mm -hmm. here. Thank you again, Amy and Erica. I adore these gals so much. Learn more at amydresner.com and ericagarza.com and find all of our books, My Fair Junkie, Getting Off, and Girl Boner on Amazon or most anywhere you buy books. When I mentioned the live recording on the Girl Boner Facebook page, you can find that on Facebook with the handle at mygirlboner. I received an important related question from Ken in Santa Monica who wrote this. I'm dating an awesome guy who confided that he is a recovering sex and love addict. I would be lying if I said this didn't concern me. How do I know if he's healed enough to be a stable boyfriend? Here's what Megan Fleming, our resident sex and relationship expert of Great Life, GreatSex.com, had to say. Ken, thanks so much for this question. And, you know, I completely can appreciate how challenging it must be um, to find this awesome guy and then get this kind of news because we all know we don't find those uh, potential partners every day. And, you know, what I guess I want to say is I think in part it's really awesome that he has, you know, the courage and the honesty to share with you that he is a recovering sex and love addict. Um, because for a lot of people, uh, you know, they kind of want to avoid or, you know, not have to share these hard truths. And I think when people can share hard truth, it's really a wonderful sign. Um, because again, it's not uncommon that, you know, I often hear clients say a version of, well, you know, it's somehow easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Um, and in this case, again, it's not asking permission, but he is disclosing something that he's quite aware is, could be, you know, a deal breaker for you or non-negotiable. So, you know, he really does have the courage to speak that hard truth. And I think that that is a great sign. And hopefully that, again, this disclosure allows it to be a topic of ongoing conversation so that, you know, you can ask him to tell you more. Like, I think you want to understand it. And again, how long has he been in recovery and what does that look like? And is he still actively in groups? Um, and which kind of groups is he in? Because there's everything from, uh, you know, groups that sort of focus on sexual addiction versus, um, sort of the love addiction or, you know, sort of focusing on out of control sexual behavior. But I think in most importantly, again, that he's how, how long into recovery is he? Have there been relapses? Um, you know, how aware is he of what sex means for him and where are, in a sense, his triggers or warning signs? Um, and, you know, when he's feeling or has felt out of control, you know, 
what did those behaviors help him to feel or not feel? You know, what are those risk factors? Um, and does he have a sexual health vision, which I think is incredibly important? Um, this comes from the work of Doug Brown Harvey, who has written a lot about um, out-of-control sexual behavior and runs groups on the West Coast. In fact, trains um, clinicians sort of across the country and in the world because you know, I think it's really important that there is a space to have this ongoing conversation that can be part of recovery. Um, but just so you know, you know, human sexuality is something that doesn't hurt anyone else. And so Doug sort of has these six fundamental principles of sexual health, which are one, consent, two, and this is incredibly important, the non-exploitation. Um, and that would be, again, what are your agreements relative to uh, pornography or, you know, this ties into the consent piece. What is it that um, you're both agreeing to and works for you both? Again, another part, number three of these six is protection from HIV and STIs, honesty, shared values, mutual pleasure. So it is these six principles that really form the foundation upon which to build our personal vision of sexual health and a shared vision of sexual health. Um, because I really think in some ways, actions do speak louder than words, and only you're going to know um, whether or not, you know, what does it look like to have a stable boyfriend and how does he show up? Because I think the challenge that you're facing is something we all face, which is embracing the uncertainty. Um, because we never, in fact, have that in any relationship, in, in some ways, even when we're married. And so it really is about looking about how he's showing up and how you feel. And how do you both as a couple manage disagreements or conflicts or potential mismatches in desire? You know, how do you handle separation? Um, how do you experience intimacy? I think that as I said earlier, the fact that he's brought this to attention, although we can become a warning sign or a flag or raise your own anxiety, it also fortunately offers the opportunity for discussion, exploration, and having a sexual health conversation. Because you know what? I think a lot of couples get into a relationship without ever having those conversations or talking about the things that are really hard. And I personally believe that is what helps bring intimacy and establish trust. So you know, I think you have to listen to your gut on this one. And as I said, keep it an ongoing conversation, seeing how long he's been in recovery, what that looks like to him, you know, how conscious is he about, uh, in a sense, what those triggers are. And is he open and willing to have that ongoing conversation with you? Um, you know, again, I often have this expression, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, you know, knowing that he's an awesome guy and having the courage to share this with you, I say, let's see where it goes. But as I said, you are your own expert. And when and if it feels like, um, you know, there's secrecy or, um, you know, discrepancies or intrusiveness or inability to tolerate uh, separateness or distance. I mean, you know what an intimate, great relationship looks like for you. So again, have a clear vision, share one together. As always, I definitely want to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I loved your points about honesty and awareness. 
this wonderful man, Ken, you're dating has displayed, it sounds like there are definitely some good things happening. But I also could understand why you might feel nervous and, and a little concerned about what you've learned. So I love Megan's advice about asking questions. That seems so important. And I love that term she mentioned, sexual health vision. I think we can all learn from those principles. What an important concept. I wish you all the best as you move forward, Ken. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeartRadio if you haven't. I also really appreciate ratings and simple reviews. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.